Josh Alvarez. And I'm Liam O'Donnell. He most certainly is. <laughs> and we're coming to you with a bonus episode of Bonus episode. Bonus. Yes, because here's the thing, y'all. Like, okay, I get it. We're in the middle of Cinoween. We're, we're recording on, in the middle of Cinoween. I don't yeah, know if they're man. hearing this in the middle of Cinoween. Okay, perhaps they're not. But like, thematically, this month has been dedicated to the spooky, spooky movies, yeah, to yeah. creepy movies, to yeah. ghost stories, to horrors, hauntings, whatever have you. Um, that said, even though that's been going on and it's a time to celebrate every year that we do, but it's also a lot of really great movies have been coming out that we've been watching and they don't fit the theme of creepy or spooky. Now, to be clear. Some of the movies I'll be discussing today in this bonus episode yeah. um, are creepy and spooky. Sure. That's the truth. Sure. But that said, there's so much more and it's like, you know. Look, let's be, we can be even more realistic here, which is that we've both randomly, because this isn't usually the case, but we've both seen so many new movies that if yeah. we just did all this as one whacking on track, it would have eaten the whole episode. So True. consider this your bonus whacking on track where we dive into recent movies that we somehow have managed to see. Right. And man, there are a couple doozies here. There are oh, a couple doozies. Geez. I don't even and know where I've to seen- start. Well, here's the thing, like, you know, listeners of the show know I've recently got a new job and part of the new job responsibility is I had to go to Austin, Texas for a week to watch, uh, to do the training, but I, I went there to watch movies is what happened. So I ended up at the Alamo draft house on South Lamar, watched a couple movies there and, um, dude, this is a great episode to talk about that shit. Cause I don't really know if we actually got into it when it happened. No, we didn't. This is the first time we've recorded since you went to Austin. Right, right. Oh, dude, we got so much to say. So much. So, but yeah, I don't know, Liam. I don't know what you think, but for me, it feels like we are at a strange epoch of like all these different movies that have been coming out. Like, not so much like indie flair, but like a lot of like just mainstream movies that have been such accomplishments that I've been so stoked on. And I want to know your thoughts about them. Yeah, I think that, um, for the most part, all the things we have to discuss today, our uh, recent you know intake has all been positive. And I think that's one of the things that will make this interesting is that like we have a lot of movies to gush about today, which is not what I would have expected. I, not that I think the movies will be bad. I don't have. Yeah, like, nor do I think we're a dour podcast. I think we know more about what we like than what or at least we talk more about what we like as opposed to what we haven't really responded to. Right. And then. I've liked a lot of the movies I've seen lately. Yeah, I got to agree, man. I got to agree. Where do you want to start? I don't even know a good place to begin. Well, let's start with the first one that I saw recently. Okay. okay. A little movie from A24 called Lamb. Starring uh, so this is, the, this, is, this is one of the ones I haven't seen. So you should go in because I don't know anything about it. So you don't have you seen the trailer at least? Yeah, yeah. But the trailer is, I mean, other than it being about. I, I assume giving birth to a lamb. I don't, I can't really tell what the movie's about. So the movie takes place in Iceland. It's, it's a pretty quiet movie. And it was such that when we saw it, you ever go see a movie that's like, just doesn't have, like it has sound design. It has like, there's stuff happening for the ears, right? That's a part of this whole movie. 
But this movie takes place in Iceland on a farm, right? And it's a very silent movie. And it was the kind of quiet where it's like you're in the theater with a bunch of other nerds because only nerds are going to go see this movie. And you're trying not to like sneeze or fart or cough or even move in your chair. And these are the movies that I don't know about you, but for me, I'm going to sit in the chair with a weird spring that day. You know what I mean? I didn't know that the spring is going to like make a, a loud squeak every time I move a foot. You know what I'm saying? And it was like that. It was like that kind of movie viewing experience for me where like no matter what I did, I was just emitting noise amidst a silent movie essentially that has like little like a lot. I mean, like you can hear it. There are people talking and it. it's not a silent movie, but it's like just not a loud movie. It's a very quiet movie in that regard. You ever have that experience? Or is it just me who's just naturally awkward? <laughs> Uh, it doesn't, well, it depends on the movie. Sometimes a a movie that has like almost, again, not no, but almost no sound is comforting to me because I think sometimes some of my favorite movies are actually a little much sound wise. Like I, I've left movies thinking I might be getting a headache from how loud that movie was, which, which if it works for the movie, I'm not complaining per se, but sometimes a movie that like can still hold me with silence is a really great experience. Right. So this movie holds you with silence. It has that same Michael Haneke patina of dread amidst uh, idyllic silence. Does that make any sense? It does. So it's got that going for it. It's a movie that is grim. It is unclear as to what is going on. And I'm not going to go into what it is, what it's about, because I think this is the type of movie that is best experienced. Um, Cause it's not like there's a narrative there and it's, it's a relatively simple narrative when you like take the macro lens to it. You know what I mean? When you see the bigger picture, you realize like, Oh, this is what this is, but it's, it's the details and it's a very detail oriented movie but it's the details that truly do build the upsetting nature of this movie, much like a Michael Haneke movie, like where like there's a thing that that's a thing. And then as it moves forward, you realize you're just getting pieces of that thing as you get to the final reveal, which is the thing. Does that make any sense? I think it does. So you can all go fuck yourselves. No, it but, does. Um, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. This movie is a bummer. It is an unpleasant movie. And me and Sharky talk about this all the time that we love and me and Liam too, that we love movies that don't love us back. This movie is unapologetic in its distaste for you. And it is, it's a movie about loss. It's a movie about loneliness and it's a movie that's told against the backdrop of an almost desolate Iceland which is to say it's gorgeous. It's very beautiful nature photography. And the story goes, it's those two things juxtaposed into a truly like unsettling experience, like an almost ethereal experience. I've explained this movie to people as if like Sigur Ross weren't working for powers of good. That's what this movie is. Like if Sigur Ross was angry, you know what I mean? Like that's, this movie is that it's not a, it's not a Disney nature show. It is for sure a grim Icelandic take on existential dread and loss. I love that. And uh, yeah, it's it, Melani saw it twice because <laughs> uh-huh. when I was away, she went and saw it again. But it's the kind of movie that like my wife is not the kind of person who watches movies over and over again like we do. She'll but she saw it a second time was like, yeah, it's even more disturbing the second time. 
Oh man, I need to see. I here's here's the deal, y'all. I knew we were doing this episode, so I've been actually trying to like hammer in some movies. Uh, but you know, uh, when I uh, if anyone listened to the last episode, which was one thirty four, you know that things have been kind of stressful on my end, and so making time to go to a movie theater by myself because Suze is not stoked on some upsetting movie. <laughs> um, uh, it just doesn't. It just didn't happen for me. So I, I apologize that this didn't make my list. But I am beyond excited to see it. Uh, the other thing it, that didn't make the list that I don't know if you got a chance to see, Josh, but it's worth mentioning, is that um, Velvet Underground documentary. I was hoping oh, to I didn't catch see it that. Yet. Yeah, Did we'll have it? to cover it. No, I I tried to make time for it. But it just didn't happen. Do you like so, the Velvet Underground like that? Uh yes. I am yeah, a me pretty too. big fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm excited yeah. to watch that. Uh, but I'm glad you saw Lamb, and, and uh, ho- uh, you know, hopefully I'll get a chance to see it soon. Yeah, I 100% recommend. It's one of those movies that the less you know about it going in, the better off you'll be. But understand that you're in for a slow burn, and it's fucked up. Period. Yeah, I... Uh I love that kind of movie. That's like right up my alley. That's exactly what I want. You know what I mean? Like that's everything you're saying about it is exactly what I want to watch. Yeah. There's so many like, and it's the kind of movie where like, as you move through its layers, you notice like little things that then just cause other questions to be asked, wherein the answers are not at all pleasant, regardless of where you land. You know what I mean? Like there's a whole, like there's just so many parts that happen. Like, a brother shows up out of nowhere and like suddenly he's in the story with the, with Numa Rapace and her husband. And like, you realize that there's like other, like it's just, there's other weird things that happen that have little details that they don't give you the whole picture, but the implications of these appearances are like so much more devastating than the fact that they're just happening. Right. Ugh, awful movie. Loved it. <laughs> what do you got, Liam? Well, uh, where should we go next? Because most of the other things is like stuff we both saw. Mm. Um, um, I guess we should go to one of the big ones that people are talking about a lot right now, which is uh, Dune. Uh, <sighs> you got to see it in advance. I, I guess I also saw it in advance, but it was only like by a day, and mm. I saw it at home, and you watched it in a theater. In a theater. A theater. Uh, yes. What did I you did. What did you think of Dune? Well, Dune was the second installment of a little series that I did that I like to call Timothée Chalamet, <laughs> where I watched two Timothée Chalamet movies in one day, and Dune was the second one. And listen, I love the David Lynch Dune. I never read the books. I never. I don't know anything about the past backstories of it. I don't know anything about the children of Dune. I don't know anything about any of the Frank Herbert stuff at all. I love the David Lynch Dune from when I was a kid. It was one of those movies that was just on HBO all the time when we had HBO. And I just saw it every single time. And I loved it every single time I saw it. And it, it Sting was in it. And then we saw the Jodorowsky's Dune documentary directed by a friend of the show, Frank Povich, who also directed the New York hardcore movie. And um, is that movie... And the connection to Jodorowsky, who is so high in the pantheon of things that I love, like it just made the David Lynch Dune, despite Jodorowsky's feelings towards it, it made that so much more clandestine for me and so much more like I still fucking love this movie. You know what I mean? Like every single aspect of it, it's like this weird feudal space drama, but not in a Star Wars way. 
You have House Atreides, House Harkonnen. There's just so many things about it. And Gidi Prime, like all the things about that movie I love. All the way yeah. down to um, Patrick Stewart playing Gunny Halleck. All the way down to um, Duncan Idaho and him like meeting his demise wearing the, still, the, the shield suit and all that stuff. Like, And dude, Kyle McLaughlin's amazing. And every single thing about that movie I loved, right? So Dune comes along and is directed by Denis Veneux. And I'm like, all right, I'm in. Because I love Dune. And we saw it in like the IMAX, John, with the Dolby surround stand. And that experience, okay, there's a lot of discussion on the, on in social media about um, Venu's like contention that you should see this on the biggest screen and so on and so forth. And then it brings in, into question like the whole classism of like in theater viewing, so on and so forth, especially during a pandemic. I get all of that. I understand. That said... When you watch this movie and your whole man boobies are jiggling because of the sound coming at you through that fucking surround sound 4K system, whatever the fuck it is, with all the numbers and letters, it is a different experience. I mean, granted, the movie itself, apart from that, I think is amazing. I loved it. But having that extra layer of like the rumble, <laughs> like just the bigger than life experience of this movie, it made the movie that much more grand, which is, again, already a grand movie. Uh-huh. And I just I loved it. I love the fact that um, they changed a lot of the stuff, but they kept like uh, the, the real curiosity to me is why they decided to keep certain things from the David Lynch movie or why they decided to omit certain things. Right. Like there's a lot of stuff that's different from the Lynch movie, like, but there's certain lines that were definitely word for word in the Lynch movie. And I'm not just talking about the, like the fear is the mind killer, like the stuff like that. I'm talking about the, I would have known him by his footsteps. You know what I mean? Like that stuff. And like all like those, like just weird little nods to the er to the earlier movie they're all throughout this movie while it's still a beast of its own regard well i think those are just from the book do you remember it's based on a book yeah i get that but they also changed a lot of the stuff right so then why would you not put the whole like poem David about lynch like, actually kept a lot of the dialogue from the book granted and i get that but uh, so then why the there's omission nothing of, like, in this movie that's original to david lynch not a goddamn thing everything you're saying is wrong yeah no, I get that. But also, why not leave the whole things in there that are like the whole things, like the whole fear is the mind killer speech and all that shit? What do you mean? She says it while he's doing the go to bar. Yeah. But she doesn't say the whole thing. She only repeats like part of it. Oh, I don't know. He just kept the part that he wanted, I guess. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, what was the demarcation between like the stuff that you kept in there versus the stuff that you decided to edit out? But that's still to the book. You're you keep relating it to the Lynch movie, and the Lynch movie, in my mind, is irrelevant unless we see Sting with his shirt off or they develop some sort of sh stupid sound guns, which is like the thing that Lynch changed the most in my mind. I mean, he changed other stuff too, but the sound guns. It's like, where the fuck did these fucking guns come from? Like, I don't understand what that's about. <laughs> the weirding way. Yeah, 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 no, yeah. I just, I don't know. It, like there, there were certain things that I was able to like pick up that I was like, oh shit. But then there were other things I'm like, you're not going to put the whole thing in there, huh? Okay, cool. But the other thing, like the omission of the pugs from uh, House of Trades and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's in the book because I never read the fucker, but I do know that that's that was the in the problem. Lynch one. Read the book. Read a book, Josh. Come on. 
It's yeah, not that hard. Our podcast is definitely called Book of Punks. <laughs> not. It should be. It should oh, be. Oh, yeah, it should be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's no, what I, I should I like be doing. The, I like the book a lot. It is, like, really weird. I mean, I think that's the... My experience of the movie was, like, I really, like, found it super entertaining. I liked it a lot. There were definitely moments that I had to explain a little bit to Suze as someone who wasn't familiar <laughs> with the story. Mm. Uh, but I think a lot of it really works. Uh, but one of the criticisms I saw from people was like, the movie is actually kind of like sanitized compared to the book. Like the book is so fucking weird. Uh, and that's one of the things about the Lynch movie is like, there's a lot of things the Lynch movie changes about the book, I guess. Uh, though, you know, I haven't watched a Lynch movie in so long. I don't remember other than the guns, what else he changed, but there's a lot of weird things in the Lynch movie that are pretty representative of the book actually, because the book is weird. And mm. There are people who are criticizing this movie for not being as weird as the book. And I I feel like part of that might be that the ways – so, you know, the book follows the same structure of, like, there's all the setup to the betrayal, and then there's the big betrayal, and then they're out in the desert, right? Mm. Um, there might have been a feeling that a lot of the weird stuff leading up to this big climactic sort of hinge point of the movie – that that stuff might have been a little distracting and that I'm hoping in the sequel when we're out in the desert that it'll mm. get really fucking weird with it. You know what I mean? Like it yeah. really fucking strange in a way that I think that's one of the places where the Lynch movie isn't as weird as it could be. And, you know, I think it's worth saying that like there was a lot of studio tampering in Lynch's stuff and he wasn't mm. sure what he could get away with and whatever, whatever. So I, I don't want to like besmirch the thing and, and I grew up with the Lynch movie so I think it's fun but uh, but I understand that for people who are obsessed with the book the Lynch movie doesn't always work for what they want and all that kind of stuff mm. uh, for me though as much as I agree that there's a lot of detail missing and like we don't I wish we I wish there was an extended version where we spent more time with the characters like mm. in this movie when Dr. Yue betrays them that means nothing there's no mm. reason it's like Oh, you mean random doctor character? He betrays you guys? Who cares? Yeah. He means nothing. In the in the, in both the Lynch movie, but I'd say more so obviously in the book, there's a feeling of I can't believe it's Doctor Ua. You know what I mean? Mm. I think there's a reveal. It's been a while since I read it. I think you know he's going to betray them before that because there's something. There might be something in his like internal dialogue. But the but the point is, it's more like a of all the characters, Doctor Ua. You know, like his mm. wife and all this stuff. You know what I'm saying? So I wish we had got more details like that in the movie to some extent. But if mm. we did then the movie would be super fucking long. Yeah, and it'd it's, be like you nine know, hours. It's already yeah. clocking in at two and a half. Yeah, so I, I think there's just so. a limit. Any, I think what uh, Villeneuve is doing that people have to acknowledge is that any film based on a book that's still going to work as a film has to leave out details. It just fucking has to. Uh, but I think, I think someone could, especially someone who had read the book more recently, could make an argument that some of the details being left out are too important to be left out. But I've mm. seen a lot of people who are as familiar with or often way more familiar with the book than I am be utterly satisfied with his take. You mm. know what I mean? So I think, I think you know, if normal people can watch it and get it and then book nerds feel mostly satisfied, that's the best you can do. And that to me is a fucking triumph. I will say yeah. visually, 
Uh, I think it's amazing looking. It's an amazing it's so looking movie. The uh, color palette's beautiful. The way they show yeah. the spice amidst the sand is beautiful. Yeah. It is a gorgeous movie. Yeah. And also, the thing about this movie that really struck me was like, they turned Max von Sydow's character from a white man in the desert to a black lady. And that shit is dope because it's like, yo, it's a desert planet. The white people would be the first people to die on that thing. So, of course, Javier Bardem is Stilgar. Of course, you've got Zendaya as Chani. Like, you've got all of these characters that are darker than a paper bag, which it makes more sense. It totally yeah. makes sense yeah. that there'd be, like, not white people on the desert planet. Yeah. And, man, the fact that... Dr. Yue is well, Asian. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. His yeah. name was Asian. Yeah. I think, uh, I think it's, it's worth noting that, uh, cause I've heard people say like, well, since there's all these like Islamic themes, oh, why, yeah. why isn't there more, uh, uh, consistency as to the background of the, of the Fremen and the other residents mm-hmm. of Arrakis. It is worth keeping in mind that in, uh, in Herbert's world, no one is indigenous. Like people keep saying like the Fremen are the indigenous to people. No one is indigenous to Arrakis. The Fremen were settlers. They were just colonizers before the Harkonnens. Well, not really the Harkonnens, but the, the, the imperialists showed up. They were there Mm. first, but they're also, uh, you know, uh, people who, who got there. If you go far enough back, everything Mm. starts at some point with earth. Now it's been, 20,000 years too. When people see the 10,000 years thing, that's 10,000 years after the holy war against the 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 uh computers. So in the world of Dune, there's computers for 10,000 years. There's computers and then there's a but they call it the Butlerian Jihad. And basically this guy is the computers have become so powerful that humans work for the computers all of the matrix. And uh, this one dude, whatever, but something Butler is like, fuck that shit. And he conducts a war, but it's not just a war. It's a holy war. Like he literally uses the language of jihad and they, they destroy all the computers. And then he establishes the first empire and changes his name to whatever the name of the emperor is. He's the first emperor. He establishes Shaddam the first. Fourth. Yeah, the yeah, but no, he has Shaddam. a, but that's his first name. His act, the actual name because of the C it's like Corsica, Corsa or Corso or Something with a C. This dude, Butler, changes his name to that. And he becomes the first emperor. And he sets up this feudal system. And the the point of the feudal system that they're in is control. Because his big fear is that someone at some point will be tempted to reintroduce thinking machines. So when, and when I say there's no thinking machines, I don't just mean no AI or no uh, 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 androids or shit like that. They don't have fucking calculators. You know, they don't have fucking smartphones. You know what I mean? Like anything like a computer at all is banned upon pain of death. You would be publicly tortured and killed if you ever tried to invent a computer in this world. Uh, And it's it's like the holiest law of the land. And that's why we have things like the Ben Gesserit and the Mentats and even the, 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 the Spacing Guild. All of these specialized humans exist to replace what alternative or uh, artificial intelligence was doing prior. You know what I mean? So mm. it's worth it's worth keeping that in <laughs> mind that this is now 20,000 years into the future, right? And mm. so uh, when it's like, well, there's no Earth, I don't think Herbert intended this to be no Earth. He intended this to be so far in the future that no one remembers what the fuck Earth is. It's, it's mm. such a distant memory, it doesn't matter anymore. But like... 
you know, the the settlers who came to uh, Arrakis were clearly influenced by uh, desert people's culture, which is a mix of other superstitions and Islam. Like that's mm. intentional, but their actual makeup is mixed because it's been thousands of years. So like it's not, they're not actually Arabic or African or whatever it is. They're a mix mm. of folks because that's how far it is into the future. But Josh's point I think is very true. It makes sense that the people who would do well living on a desert planet for few thousand years would at least have gotten darker. Like <laughs> it, here's the reality folks. If you put white people on an island long enough, they're going to get darker. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they might never become fully melanated, but they're not going to look like Norwegians. Like that's they're not, not going to look like Max von Sydow. Yeah, 100%. The there's no fucking Despite way. Despite the eyes of a bad. Yeah. yeah no. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, but it's worth keeping that in mind. Cause I think that a little bit of that uh, narrative is lost. Although, you know, it, 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 there is a little bit of like detachment from the thing. There's, there's a lot of uh, uh, Muslim critics of the movie who wish that there was more representation of Muslim folks behind mm. the camera that could advise on the use of language and stuff like that. And I get that. I, and I think that's a fair critique. I also think the movie does nothing that the book doesn't do. So like if, if the feeling is that Frank Herbert plays loose and fast with a, with a, uh, both a religion and an ethnic group that he doesn't fully understand. Yeah. I, I, that's fair. That's probably fair. He was writing in the sixties. I don't think hmm. he was too worried about it, but I don't think anything about it is bad per se. Like I don't, I don't think there's anything in my mind to be deeply offended about. I just get why people wish it was maybe a little bit different, but for me, I think, and this isn't to criticize Lynch too hard, but the fact that the original Dune is entirely white people is really weird. Mm -hmm. It's yeah, just yeah, weird, yeah. right? Like it's it just makes you, sense. I didn't even think about it until I saw this one. I'm like, Max on Sidow was in Ingmar Berkman movies. There's no way that he'd stay as white as he was on a <laughs> desert planet. Not no, a thing. No, no way. Not yeah. happening. Yeah. Well, and even the Fremen we meet are just like strong European men, and yes. it's like they Dude. live in, they live in the desert and they use hybrid Arabic words. Like they're probably not totally white. You know what I mean? I like, really did love Javier Bardem as Stilgar, though. Like that. Yeah, I thought he was cool. good. I, I like I liked all whoa. those. I thought I thought I on a pure performance level, I don't think everyone is given everything to do that I want them, but. I thought everyone was good. No one was like, uh, what the fuck are they? Like, I thought they were great. And Jason Momoa as Duncan Idaho is so fucking charming. He's it's like, so great. Yeah. 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 It, dude. And like the fact that he doesn't, he doesn't get it where he got it in the Lynch movie that yeah. they give him a little bit more to do and a little more agency. Like I agree. That shit was dope. I loved I it. I was like, yo, that shit is cool. Like, that's why Duncan's not just some dude that like knows house of trades. He's like a yeah. part of their fam. You know what yeah. I mean? And like, I just giving him that much more to do in this movie just makes the character that much more like elegiac and a lot more yeah. like profound the loss and all that stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's so good. It's so I cool. think I think I will I think I just on a basic level, I fully enjoy this movie. There's a couple of decisions I would have done a teeny bit differently, but I think this is probably the best case scenario for any fans of the book. And I, and that's mostly what I've heard from other fans of the book that they fell the same way. I do think that I wanted to get a little bit weirder when Paul's having visions and shit and he's learning mm. all this stuff and he's communing with the fucking Shahulud and all this stuff. I want the movie to push the visual imagery a little bit harder than it did in this one. Mm. But 
that's not a big critique of this one. I think this one is great as it is. I just hope, uh, uh, Grant, they might not even let him make a second one. It's not even clear. But yeah, if it's he, not even greenlit yet. Yeah, yeah. But if he does get to make a second one, I hope he feels emboldened to be even more, more weird with it and really push the boundaries of whatever. And then I hope he goes on after that because keep in mind, y'all, like Herbert really saw this. It ended up being more than three books, but his original plan was three books, right? And the three books were a three-part opera that was a tragedy. So mm. Dune is the heroic intro, right? And then yeah. and then uh, Messiah of Dune and Children of Dune are the tragic downfall of Paul, who is not actually a hero at all. He's a giant mm-hmm. fucking disappointment, not just to us, but to the entire universe. That's what the and story of Dune is. not the Quitsat Tetrarch. I want to give a shout out to my boy, Matt Smith, who played in Halo Snakes with me, who, even though he loves the books, yeah. but I love the David Lynch thing. So when we talked about it, he'd always be like, hey, you know, the thing is, Paul Trades isn't the Quitsat Tetrarch. I'm like... Whoa. <laughs> and then every single time he'd bring that up and the dancing Shakira mashup of hips don't lie with dancing. <laughs> but anyway, that's right, beside the point. Let's keep going. What else have you watched recently that we need to talk about, Josh? Well, I followed Lamb, which is again a grim movie. I followed that up with another grim movie, Titan. <laughs> oh yeah. I let's be clear, I have no idea how you pronounce this movie. Titan, Titani, Titan. I don't know. Titan. I have no idea. No idea. Did you seen it? Oh, I did. And where are you with this? I think I love this movie. I, I uh, well, <clears throat> let me start with what I love about this movie. This is a wild movie. This is, is a fucking insane, unhinged fuck you movie. It is a yeah. f- first of all, it is a female take on body horror, which I'm not seeing a lot of people acknowledge. This is a body horror movie. It is yeah. a it is it is from a female perspective, which we don't get a lot, but it is a fucking body horror movie. It is also uh, a movie about family, uh, both mm. born and found, and, and adopted. Yeah, and the part of it that's hard for me, and I want to thank uh, Cinepunk uh, Claire Barnett for bringing this up. It might also be a movie about gender, and I say might because I wonder what. Uh, a trans man or or a non-binary who leans more masculine would feel about this movie, right? So Claire is a trans woman and she loved it but thought, I wonder how, she sort of said, I wonder how I would feel if some of the gender stuff touched me more personally. Would it be good or would it feel a problem? And mm. I've looked, I haven't found any uh, trans male writers writing about the film. So I don't know if there's anything in it that maybe plays differently for them. For me, I don't actually think the movie's about gender. That's my thought uh, Mm. after first watch, is that it plays with gender expectations, but her being this man's son, or trying to be this man's son, is Mm. not a criticism of gender. It's really about her trying to be something she's not and trying to hide who who she she is, is, you know, and I don't think it's meant to be primarily about gender other than the idea that the type of body horror it is, is so gendered. It's so So feminine. Yeah. Femme. Uh, um, And granted, maybe that's going to be an issue for other trans viewers. I don't know. I, 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 you know, I will freely admit with no fear and no sense of insecurity that my perspective is, 
intensely cis, and so it is it is bound to my identification with my biology. So I, I I don't I don't have that insight to criticize it with. I suspect it's not a problem. I suspect it's actually fine. But it, it did make me think like, oh, I wonder what a trans. And this was before Claire said anything to me about it. I thought, I wonder what a trans perspective on this movie would be because there is a little bit of gender swapping going on and a little bit of like mm. her dealing with her pregnancy and stuff. That being said, this is a movie that is somehow both deeply horrifying and touching at the same time. And that fucked with me. I don't know how you felt about yeah. that, Josh. No, there's nothing. There's nothing sympathetic in this movie. Every single scene is abrasive. In even in the most tender moments, they're all steeped in this horrific sorrow. Sure. So um, that said, that's exactly what I loved about it. That yeah. it's unapologetic. Now, granted, following up Lamb with this was probably not the correct choice. But also, you, you put a lot on yourself. Yeah, but I was in Austin, so anything was going to be weird. So it was fine that this was the movie that the first movie I saw when I was in Austin. And uh, also, it was funny because I was actually in the theater by myself. And then uh, like a couple other like people filtered in as the movie was beginning. But it was funny because two people sitting next to me, like they're like from Austin or whatever. And we were talking about it. I don't remember their name. So if you're listening to this, because I did tell them that Cinepunks is us. Um, if you're listening to this and that was you, yo, that shit was wild. But um, we were talking about movies like right before the trailers and all that stuff started happening. And um, before the Alamo told us that we had to shut the fuck up or get the fuck out kind of thing. And um I definitely think by the end of they they were very pleasant people. I enjoyed like, you know, I was there by myself. So it was like, you know, when you're a stranger in a strange land, anybody that's yeah. kind to you is like a yeah. cool person to talk to. And I really appreciated that. But also by the end of the movie, I was so fucked up that I just had to leave. Like I didn't say goodbye. <laughs> I was like just got up silently, yeah. walked yeah. out, got on a rent a scooter and rode that thing home without smiling. And uh well back to the hotel anyway. And um yeah, yeah, yeah. So if if you were the couple that I spoke with at the beginning of this movie last maybe two weeks ago, well, two weeks ago, at the beginning of uh, October, thank you for being cool with me and sorry I didn't say goodbye. That said, this movie, I mean, it's two, it's two separate movies jammed into one, right? Like it's got the first bit where she's murdering everybody and it's got the yeah. second bit where she's trying to be the son while she's pregnant with this uh, car baby. It's just, there's just so much to it that, I mean, when you compare it to Raw, Raw is so much more based in like what feels like a reality, despite it's like seriously fucked up. But like it's pretense. deeply. Uh, but I would say I think Raw is still deeply steeped in metaphor. Raw is not about cannibals; it's about puberty. You know what right. I mean? And so, like, even though it's a but movie with cannibals, points, it's about the reference, puberty. The reference point isn't it's it's the young lady in school, whereas this one. You've got this lady that's got like a brain showing on the side of her head from when she kicked the back of the car as a kid. And then you got like this whole like she's biting the nipple rings on the lady. And then she's like stabbing the dude in the ear with the with the with the the hair thing. There's just like so much stuff in here and just the color palette that they chose for like both parts of the movie. Just like the weird surroundings and the settings for each of these parts of the movie, which I see is two separate like like chapters, of course. Cause they are, you know what I mean? Like it's so much wilder visually speaking. It felt like that there was nothing I could relate to visually on this movie that the whole I movie is anime. I guess, I guess that's true. I, I think there's something very human about this movie in the sense mm -hmm. that like, here's this uh, girl who 
is at odds with her family. She's at odds with her father. Her father's obviously a monster, like an inhuman piece of shit. Mm. And that trauma of that early accident and her metal plate in her head is with her. And she is detached. I mean, I feel like every time we see her commit an act of violence, we're seeing her further disassociated from humanity. That mm. in a sense, you could argue that this is like a post-human film. Hence her ability to get impregnated by a car. What does she love? Mm. She loves the car. And the car gives her so, uh, you know, this thing that is a curse to her. It's a curse of, of, um, of a future. It's a curse of a life and then in pretending to be someone she is not, she connects to someone who is abrasive and and hubristic and in some ways kind of awful, who also is so vulnerable that she can't help but like feel for him. And mm. as two people who are not quite human, right, she's made of metal in one part of her body. He cannot be who he is without drugs. He needs mm. roids to like create this faux manhood that he's living into right mm. between the two of them and they're living in uh, not quite fully human they are somehow able to see something human in each other and have like what is basically a uh completely connection. inappropriate connection yeah they clearly both are attracted to and horrified by and uh, familial towards each other, right? Mm. Everything about their relationship is inappropriate in every possible mm. way. And yet there's a deep connection there. And then she gives birth to a post-human child, to a child who is not quite fully human, and it fills him with deep love and gratitude. And that's how the fucking movie ends. Oh, God, I shouldn't have spoiled that. Uh, Fuck. It's so I good. Though. I don't know. I, mean, how to, I don't, I don't really know how think to that that's even that. going to affect the way someone sees this movie because there's yeah. so many like there's so many elements to this movie that the yeah. ending isn't even where you're trying to go. What I'll say you is what, I mean? what is what I'll say is I'm going to put in the title of the episode that there are spoilers, and that will be your spoiler warning. And if for some reason you ignored the title of the episode saying spoilers, and you heard me spoil Titane, oops, my bad, fuck you. I'm sorry. Not even the most fucked up part about the movie though. That's the no, thing. No, like, it's it not. doesn't. No, it's it not. doesn't even change anything. Like there is no reveal knowing how this movie ends. No, and and I think that. Uh, but this is the sort of ex like this is the sort of experimental filmmaking where what you're able to do is say here's a full narrative. This is a narrative film. It's not the Holy Mountain. It has mm. a fucking narrative to it. Yeah. But also, this narrative is not connected to the real world, no. and it's not happening in a literal way, in a sense. So like. There's no part of this movie that morally makes me feel comfortable, and yet somehow it elicited my emotions. And I thought that was fucking brilliant and upsetting, which is like the point. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's oh, a great movie. So Highly good. recommend so it. So good. All right. Let's keep, we should keep it moving here. Let's keep it moving. What else? Because we got, we've seen a lot of movies, y'all. We've seen a lot. Yeah, uh, you know did. what? I'll take a brief aside and talk about a movie I saw that you did not get to see, and then Go we'll on. talk to a movie that we both saw that I think we both loved. So first- a movie that I saw very recently, I was going to write it up. I didn't because I, I I don't know what to say that I think it's worth sharing. It's a movie called Antlers. 
Oh, I've heard horrible things about this movie. Yeah, it's bad. It is a horror film. I went in not knowing a lot about it, right? I just, you know, I had heard a teeny bit, a teeny, mm. teeny bit, but I didn't know much. And so um, it is, uh, oh, sorry. Give me one sec here. I wish that the IMDb app was like reliable. Mm. You know what I mean? Like every time yeah. I click on the app, like, let me get a quick answer to my question. The app's like, nah, that's all right. <laughs> it just doesn't work. And I'm like, what the fuck? Okay. Sorry, y'all. Uh, so Antlers is a movie. It's directed by Scott Cooper, who I am not super familiar with as a director. Um, I don't know if y'all have seen some of his other movies like Crazy Heart, uh, out of the oh, furnace. Crazy heart. Crazy heart was good. I out love crazy. Was good I love too, yeah. crazy heart. Uh, black mass. I don't like, uh, and I never saw hostiles. Mm. Uh, antlers though is a, um, I mean, <sighs> saying what the, what the legend is, is a little bit of a spoiler. So I apologize, but it's a Wendigo story, you know? So anyone okay. who's familiar with Wendigos will know, but basically, a family uh, of there's a family that's basically two kids and a dad and the dad is a meth dealer. Uh, he uses to, but he's mostly a dealer and they're him and a partner are making meth in an abandoned mine and they're attacked by some sort of spirit. And then we jump into the future and, um, uh, uh, Carrie Russell, who mm -hmm. is by the way, amazing in this movie. Uh, is a teacher and one of her kids just seems to be going through a lot and is drawing these really upsetting pictures. And what we realize is basically the one kid, his dad and his little brother have been infected by the spirit and are becoming less and less human in the Wendigo way. And this kid is taking care of them, basically killing various wild animals and bringing them the meat so they can eat the meat. Cause if not, they'll just go out and murder people. Right. And so, uh, Carrie Russell is worried about him and she lives with her brother played by Jesse Plemons, who is also amazing in the movie. In fact, mm. Carrie Russell, Jesse Plemons, and the main kid, who's like the other star of the movie, all three of them are stupendous. Just unbelievable performances in this incredibly stupid movie. And basically what happens is um, the whole thing becomes a metaphor for abuse. Carrie Russell is a victim of abuse. She disappeared for a while because her father was sexually assaulting her. And then after he dies, she comes back to live with her brother. And her brother was never fully aware of what was going on, though he does know something bad was happening. Like he's he doesn't blame her in some ways for leaving and in some ways he does, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and their dad killed him himself so also he's a little sensitive about the death of their father right so mm. then they take this father who is clearly a pedophile and probably abusive in other ways too and smush it together with meth dad and use it all as a metaphor for bad parents now look guys you know i'm straight edge right <laughs> i got no love for meth you know <laughs> if you think a meth addict dad and a sexually assaulting pedophile dad are the same fucking thing, you can turn this podcast off and kick bricks, <laughs> motherfucker. Now, it's not a direct metaphor. It's not a literal. But in order for the themes of the movie to work, which is like she feels for his pain because she also had a bad dad and, and his dad is turning into this monster. Yeah, he's turning into this monster because of the curse of the Wendigo. And the curse of the Wendigo... <sighs> The idea that he becomes the Wendigo because he's a meth dealer, 
I mean, you would think this movie was written by a, by a misguided straight edge kid. You know what I mean? Like, right, right, right. Uh, it's it's just too much. And then the only part of the movie that's kind of effective is how we don't when he finally makes the final transformation into the Wendigo, we don't see it for a long time, and they really play with it, and it's awesome. Until then, later, we do see it. They have to show us the fucking CG Wendigo, and the design is stupid. It's stupid. Yeah, looks bad. Real bad. And then... I mean, here the only reason I'm surprised is because GDT produced it, right? Like, Yeah, yeah. And come on, man. Like, we love him. I'm telling you, it's a, it's a rough watch for me. Now, I'm mad because of the potential because I think the performances are great and I think a Wendigo story is a cool idea. I just think if you're going to have someone get the Wendigo, how about someone destroying the earth? That would be cool. Or someone who's like a monster in other ways. Like, I don't know. I guess we're supposed to think that this dad's probably sucks because he's a meth dealer. And that's probably true. He probably isn't a great dad, but the way that the film sort of easily draws comparisons between him and a salty pedophile dad just made me feel like they were playing too loose. And then there's some really hard decisions that are made later in the movie that Mm -hmm. also don't quite work. You know, um, I guess we already spoiled stuff. So if you don't want to spoil it for antlers, skip this part. Right. She eventually has to kill the little kid too, because the little kid has been infected with the Wendigo. And the idea that, like, well, the kid's got to go, man, because he's also infected. Infected with what? That his dad's a bad dad? Like, if you wanted to, dude, you could read this whole movie as some sort of fascist, you know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, unsavory people must be cleansed from our population, you know? Now, I don't think that's intentional. I think it's actually just they're just trying to tell a spooky story. But if that's all you're doing, then why? squish together so many other metaphorical things where it's like the Wendigo is like her abusive dad. They really, they push that visually and narratively so hard that then when she's killing the kid, you're like, fuck man, what are we doing with this goddamn movie? Right. And then at the end, there's a stinger where maybe they're infected with the Wendigo too. Cool. Awesome. Awesome. Great. And of course, how do we even know about the Wendigo, Josh? If we're going to find about the Wendigo in, in the in the Pacific Northwest, who's going to tell us about the Wendigo? <laughs> the Pacific Northwesterners. <laughs> A magical indigenous person. <laughs> he used to be the sheriff, but now he's not the sheriff. He's just a sad man who knows everything about magic. Do, do, do. Former sheriff. Now he's magic, I guess. I don't fucking know. It's just like, wow. okay, so we're in this town that used to have an indigenous sheriff, but there's almost no other indigenous characters like by name in the whole fucking movie. There's a couple of kids, but that's it. So we don't get to know any indigenous people except for the former <sighs> sheriff who goes, Who's... let me tell you about the legend of the Wendigo. Get the fuck out of here. It's so, anyways, it just doesn't work. I, I could, I could be, again, I'm being too hard on the movie. The movie is watchable. It's not the worst thing ever, but it has such, I think actually, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit, but in my mind, really strong performances from uh, Carrie Russell, from Jesse Plemons and from this kid. I think they're all three so good that the fact that the movie doesn't work for them and their performances, I left a little angry. I left a little angry at the movie. So whatever. That sucks. If people don't agree, let us know. Let us know what you liked about antlers because it it just didn't work for me. Okay. I mean, word on the curb is that GDT was here for 
uh, film fest where they they played it. And he was he did like a Q&A or something like that. I don't know. It was like one of the things that was getting hyped. I don't really I don't know anything about it. I haven't heard anything about it, but I also wasn't looking. So what do I know? But that said, man, what a bummer. Well, I mean, it would. I mean, I love GDT, but he's done things I don't like. I'm not going to pretend that he's got the magic touch. No one's perfect. And this is not perfect. So there's something we watched, though, that we both were very excited about. And a friend of the show didn't like and let us know why. What movie is that, Josh? Uh, It would be installment one on my Timothée Chalamunde marathon, (laughs) The French Dispatch by Wes Anderson. Now, you know what, man? I am done apologizing for my fandom of Wes Anderson. I'm done. Yeah, I agree. I'm not here to make anyone feel any better, okay? My brother makes fun of me. He's like, oh, that's shit white people like. Like, cool. I guess if white people like dope movies, then I like shit that white people like. Like, what do you want from me? Josh, uh, I mean, let's just own it, right? Uh, we both like Sriracha. We both- We do. We both like Nutella, right? It's true. We both have been to brunch on a number of occasions, right? Many brunches. So many brunches. I have multiple Radiohead records. You know what I'm saying? It's like true, man. I enjoy French bread. Yeah. I, uh, I you know, what do you I'm want not saying, me? I'm not saying there isn't white people stuff that I don't like too, but like Wes Anderson is something that white folks are correct about, which is that he's good. Now I, do I wish that he did more things that were a little more diverse? Maybe, but maybe he just knows who he is and the kind of stories he can tell. I don't fucking know. All I know is I don't love Isle of Dogs. Right. I thought it was okay when I first saw it on rewatch. It's a little flat for me. And uh, what's the train movie again that he did? The Darjeeling Limited. Darjeeling Limited is fine. It just doesn't reach the level of charming of his other movies. That's two movies, Josh, out of a lot of movies, all of the rest of which I feel joy every time I watch them. Despite their dour underpinnings, every single one of his movies is a tragedy. And yet the women... And this movie is no, it's no different than that. There is a distinct underpinning of great sorrow for this movie. Right. There is a subtext of great tragedy and loss. And yet I enjoyed it. It's extremely wonderful to me. And I thought it was highly watchable. A friend of the show, Justin Nordell felt otherwise about this. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, he says that, you know, his his criticism is that it's his least watchable movie because Wes Anderson movies are character driven movies. And given the format of a vignette movie, which this movie is, that the characters never have a chance to fully uh, emerge in that they just become these vehicles for this almost signature whimsy that Wes Anderson directs with now. And um, I hear him. I hear my mans. You know, it's cool. Yeah. I mean, he's one but, of he's 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 one of our favorite people in the world. He's someone he who's one of our favorite guests. Yeah, we guest. love him like, to death. It's and not that, like, but here's here's the deal for me. First of all, this is and this is going to sound insane to anyone who knows Wes Anderson. This is Anderson's most stylistically driven movie. Agreed. This movie is all visuals and style and vibe. He's trying to create a number of different sort of. Uh, uh, pastiches of things that mm-hmm. he is inspired by. It is an ode to a certain era of writers that were, you know, kicking it in Paris, though they were not French. I mean, that's literally mm. what the movie, the movie is about a whole era of a certain kind of writer and the sort of thing they were doing. And it both 
it both caricatures that and those writers and pays homage to them. That's what it, it does. And it does it so effectively too, right, because there's right. never a point where you doubt that Bill Murray is that dude that sits yeah. there in the corner yeah. with a notepad critiquing yeah. what these people are writing. And it's fucking great. It, it's, it's also, so a, it's also an ode to the life of the mind while it's also making fun of people who rely too much on the life of the mind. It yes. is doing a Wes Anderson thing of this is something I love. Here is me mocking it, which, by the way, is also how I feel he relates to rich white people. People are always mm. like, he, he he portrays a lot of rich white people. And I'm like, yeah, because they're easy to mock while you're also paying respect. And that's what he does in this movie. He loves this culture he is portraying, but he's also taking the piss out of it because that's how he mm -hmm. knows to pay homage to something is to mock it a little bit. And it's funny and it's charming and parts of it I found heartwarming and effective. And here's the thing with me and Mr. Nordell, who I love. I love you. Justin, I love you. I don't think Wes Anderson's movies are always character driven. And the reason I feel that way is there are a number of his movies that I like that I don't like the characters in. Mm. which I think is somewhat sacrilege. But for me, right, and maybe, mm. Justin, I, maybe Justin doesn't mean that the characters are charming. Maybe he just finds them compelling. But and, and, and maybe I could buy on that. But for me, the characters in this movie are compelling, even the ones we mm. only see for a short period of time. They're not all charming, though. Some of them are abrasive. Some of them I don't yeah. like very much, which is how I feel about Rushmore. I'm sorry, mm -hmm. y'all. This whole yeah. thing where we pretend that Rushmore is good because Schwartzman and Murray are charming. No, they're assholes. That's what the movie's yeah, they're about. They're both dicks. Yeah, they that's suck. what that movie's about, this weird pissing contest yeah. between assholes. And now, that's what I love about now it. I do that's find, what makes it so good. I do find characters in Royal Tenenbaum sympathetic. I do find some of the characters in Steve uh, Sisu sympathetic, mm -hmm. but- not so much. And and it's not about the characters as much as Steve C. Sue. I think Steve C. Sue is one of his best movies because of the of design. How flawed Steve C. Sue yeah. is also. And yeah. like it's he's not a heroic character. He's not. And you think about characters from Bottle Rocket. You think about Dickman. Yeah. Like that dude's an asshole. And um the other I, guy I think the character point works very well for Grand Budapest. I think Grand Budapest mm. is very much like I care about what's happening there. Every single character. Yeah, Ray Moon, Fine. Like, Moon, but that's Moonrise, the whole movie, right? Moonrise Kingdom, though, it's just the kids. I only care mm. about the kids in a, in a connected way. That doesn't make the other characters bad, though. And it, they work for the movie. It's just the idea that, like, oh, I'm moving because of the characters. I think it's just the kids in Moonrise Kingdom, although it's been a while since I've seen it. but I still love um, it. I yeah. watched it recently. Oh, yeah. I, I I don't have anything negative to say. I'm just saying, I I don't know that I need super compelling characters for this movie to work for me. And mm -hmm. what I'm seeing a lot here represented in the movie is what Wes Anderson cares about. I feel like mm -hmm. he's showing us a little bit of his own passions, his own interests, and I and I found that compelling as well as. The, the the themes at play in the section with Jeffrey Wright, and for those who are wondering, mm. Jeffrey Wright basically is a stand-in for James Baldwin. Not literally, yeah. he's a different person, but clearly that's the sort of character that's being put on and display here. So good. I found it moving. I found it really yeah. emotional, and I don't know how anyone couldn't. I don't know how you hear that line about you know being someplace and it's not your world. And not oh, God. get emotional. Like, I'm an immigrant, you know. Yeah. Yeah. When when the when the chef is on the table. Yeah. Oh my God. I started crying when that scene happened. When he yeah. said that line. And, and it, it makes, just hit and me. And it makes me think right. of Baldwin. Of Baldwin saying yeah. he flew he fled to Paris 
to find himself only to find that he was deeply American and that Paris wasn't his world. Like, and, and to realize that deeply Americanness is a lament. It's a fucking lament to realize this place that hates you is also not your home, but this new place where you feel like you fit is also not your home. You know, this, this uh. otherworldliness to it, like, fuck. Oh, I'm getting emotional just thinking about it. It's, it is in a way, and it, granted, he has to he has to channel a small bit, not all of a small bit of Baldwin to even get there. But this mm. is the first bit of Anderson that has anything like a message to it, I think. Yeah, which is I like, agree. nothing against his movies. I love how flimsy they are and how they are personal, but they have no greater depth to them. That's great. That's part of what makes them fun. But here, he touches something, and he has to fucking he has to fucking channel Baldwin to get there. But it's worth it to get to that moment, which is not the point of the movie per se, but a, one of many magical moments in the movie for me, and one mm -hmm. that got to my to my heart. Yeah, I agree. It reminded me of that scene in The Dead Don't Die when the RZA shows up and uh, and Jim Jarmusch is like, yeah, that's me in the movie. That's like the central point of like reality in this movie. That's like completely whimsical zombie movie. Like that was the that moment in this movie that was like that is kind of the purest context of Wes Anderson. Yeah. That's yeah. wrapped in all of his ephemera. Yeah, I agree. I don't also, know, maybe it's it's a visually stunning movie. Like, like it is, it is lovely. If you like the way that Wes Anderson's movies look, he does stuff here he's never been able to do before in my mind, and he does it in a much grander way uh, while still having some of the small, minute, miniature sort of stuff he's done too. He also mm. does a bigger staging that I think is magical. And there's a whole animation section that is unbelievably charming. So good. So, so good. You know what this movie felt like to me? And I said it as soon as I saw it, but uh, Troy didn't think that because I, I took a friend of the show and tattooer of the stars, Troy Souders with me. And um, the first thing I said as soon as the movie was done was that this movie felt like how it felt in the late nineties when echo came out before echo clothing had to get the K in there and it was still like Mark echoes like brand that he was selling out of his car. Sure. And, um, they came with that mixtape. Do you remember that? Well, echo clothes used to come with like a mixtape. It was like just hip hop that was happening at that time. Yeah. And it was like a gift. It just came with the shirt. If you found, if you were, if you were at fat beats or if you were somewhere in New York city at that time in the weird late nineties moment before rock is closed and you got that tape, it was like someone giving you fire. And this movie had that same feeling of like this multifaceted fire and so many different takes on that very specific feeling of discovery and fire. That's what this movie felt like to me. Like I got a Mark Echo mixtape from the nineties, from the late nineties, <laughs> which is funny, which is funny, but also that I, I can't really, that, that's the thing about this movie. I can't really describe it in any other terms because I don't really think I've had very many experiences like this movie in my life. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I think for people who know like the history of cinema, there was a time when a lot of cinema was like one stage shot, you mm -hmm. know, he, he pulls from that. There are multiple scenes where he has a static shot and all this movement and change is happening in the shot. It has to be perfectly choreographed and perfectly timed. And he fucking does it. And every time he pulls it off, it's magic. It's, and even it's the like parts a magic when It's like where he doesn't pull it off, but it's still like, so like when, when, um, 
Owen Wilson crashes his bike. That yeah. scene is hilarious. It's Love so it. good. It's oh so god. funny. Oh my god. And it's so staged. And then it goes awry. And it's like, you know, that that was planned too, but it still takes the piss out of itself, which to me is so charming and so fun. Oh, fuck this movie. I This might be my favorite Wes Anderson movie, which is a hard thing to say, given that I've named my band after the Grand Budapest Hotel. But man, I mean, that's still number two. But this movie is so good. And the thing is, Bill Murray, his character in this movie, as again, the weird like tie that ties everything together is so good. Yeah. And it's so fun. And then he it ends with him dying and he's lying on his editor's <laughs> table with his shoes on and everything. So good. And it's oh my God, it's so funny. It's so charming. I mean, and I don't I don't understand how anyone watching this movie, again, not to pick on you, Justin, but let's just say generally, I watch this movie and I think, how do I be one of these writers? Like yeah. I, I want to be in that world. I want to yeah, be yeah, one yeah. of these folks. It's 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 unbelievable. It's magical. It's seriously like Voltron, like all these weird pieces come together. And it feels like everybody that was ever in any Wes Anderson movies in there. But then a couple other people too, like Liam Shriver's in there. Like you, I don't think he was in any other movie by him before. And, nope. um, but you, Jason Schwartzman's in there. And, um, you, there's just like a bunch of like the people that are in there that you're like, ah, oh, Hey, look, it's Ed Norton. You know what I mean? Like, it's cool. Like I just, I don't know. It's such a rewarding movie to me. And uh, with respect to Justin and with respect to other people that did not like this movie, whom I, you know, still adore and still love. I, I mean, maybe it speaks to my inability as a critic, but I do love this fucking movie unabashedly and without any shame. I love no, it. No, no. It hit I, me. Uh, let's, let's all be fair that the critic thing is, a, is a word game. There's not really an objective reality. There, there is a sense in which you can perform at a technical level, uh, and that that can be good or bad. Like there is a technical prowess, but once you get past that, something works for you or it doesn't. It didn't work for Justin and that's fine. I mean, I'm going to physically fight him when I see him, but otherwise <laughs> it's fine. We can disagree on these things and it's not, it doesn't mean anything per se for me and you, for whatever reason, we both felt the same, which is like, oh, similarly friend of the show, Adriana Gober is not a big Wes Anderson fan. Just isn't one of her directors, right? She still mm. said she's going to try to see it, partly because me and you both liked it so much. If she ends up not liking it, I wouldn't be offended. You know what I mean? Mm. Like that's she. Yeah, didn't, yeah, she, didn't, she didn't let me down. But if she does like it, then I'll be interested to hear how it works for her and how it, yeah. it's different from Especially his other movies. Since yeah. it's not one of her directors, it's yeah. not like her yeah. thing. Yeah, but man. So, this I mean, is the sweet spot for me. This was yeah. exactly what I needed when I saw it. And it made me so happy. And I'm still riding high on that joy. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, that uh, I think that does it, right? Was there anything else that you saw that you wanted to talk about? No, that's all I got. All right. That was enough, though, that I'm glad. You know, this is this is a little over an hour. It's, you know, a lot of stuff to cover. Uh, of course, as always, we never did this. But even on this bonus episode, thanks to LVAC. Thanks to thanks Essex, to coffee, Essex Roasters. coffee Roasters. Please go order coffee and use our code. And, of course, thanks to all of our Patreon supporters. We're going to try to do something like this for Patreon soon. Uh, when me and Josh have some time, we're going to jump on and just chat about stuff and give you guys some extra content. But until then, we hope this is great for people. And we wanted to get this out sort of as our word on a bunch of new movies that have come out. So thanks for listening. We really appreciate appreciate and you also, all. Right in. Tell us if there are movies that you think we yeah. should be watching that yeah. we haven't touched on yet. Because Lord yeah. knows Liam and I are not experts 
we don't know what the fuck we're talking about half the time. And yeah. if you listen to the show, you know that. Yeah. So if there are movies that you think that we should be talking about, new movies, old movies, whatever, hit us up, man. Let yeah. us know because we're very open to it. And honestly, it's this is a labor of love for both yeah. of us. We love this shit. So we want to see new I films. very specifically want to know two things. One is uh, if there are sort of larger topics you want to hear from us that we haven't gotten to yet. Someone already said like African films. We did the Wakaliwood episode, but there's other kinds of African films we could be covering. Uh, but other things, you know, if there's directors we haven't covered or uh, types of movies you want to hear from us, that's one thing. Another thing I'd love to hear is uh, if you've managed to catch some new movie that we haven't mentioned that you think is worth us checking out, let us know so that Please we can at least try to find it and check it out for ourselves. And if we love it, uh, we'll talk about it on the show. We probably won't get to it if we totally hate it, but we might. Who knows? <laughs> you know what the funny thing about this show is for 140 whatever episodes, we never really talk about movies that we hate. Like it's I mean, you could honestly say not most a of lot, we've not a lot. Not a lot. We don't really, I mean, but that's the thing, right? We love movies and we love you. So we want you to be part of this conversation. We want you to hit us up and be our friends and let us know what you think and let yeah. us know what we should be yeah. talking about. I think we take chances sometimes and not everything works for us. Like when we did the Abel Ferrara episode, you yeah. and you and Ryan didn't like King of New York, which you're wrong about. Uh, <laughs> and that and was when we did fine. The, when we did the sports episode, we both are like, I don't really know much about sports to begin yeah. with. Yeah, that's true. It's <laughs> <laughs> really funny. Yeah, All right. yeah, yeah. All right, we're going to wrap this up. Thanks for listening, y'all. We love you. Thanks me. for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Smoke bomb. Do you like spooky movies? Hair-raising tales. Insightful criticism. Judgmental hot takes. Then you're going to love Horror Business, the horror podcast on the Cinepunks Podcast Network dedicated to all things weird and spooky. My name is Leo Dong. And I'm Justin Lore. And every episode, we're going to tear apart your favorite and not-so-favorite horror movies to get to the bottom of what makes these movies great, or maybe not great. Whether it's The Beyond, Prince of Darkness, or Inseminoid, we dive in on a double feature every episode, and then we talk about it. Some of our insights are great, and sometimes we just complain. So if we have to suffer through it, so do you. Horror Business, available anywhere you find fine podcast products.